You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. We are up to episode 96 with Dr. Anna Roby. Now, as promised, I've been having some direct conversations with a lot of you and what I've been talking about lately on the podcast and on my social media and newsletter is to bring you a lot more honest conversations, perhaps conversations that you don't necessarily agree with everything. Maybe you agree with everything completely and you're waiting for someone to have this conversation and maybe it really pisses you off. Either way, I'm excited to bring you these conversations and to bring a lot more of a complex nature to the content that we're talking about here. As always, if it is something that really speaks to you or is something that really makes you angry, reach out to me directly, share your thoughts, share it with your friends, share it with your therapist or whoever else you talk to about this stuff. I just ask you that you start the conversation, that you continue the conversation. So share the episode with whoever you know might enjoy it. While I'm talking to Anna, she actually goes into depth into her experience and who she is. So I'm going to leave most of the introduction to her background, to her, and you'll hear that in a little bit. But she is a PhD RD studied at Cornell, worked at NIH, does a lot of research or for sure did a lot of research, uh, now runs a private practice in Minneapolis and specializes in eating disorders and disordered eating. But along the road, Anna's going to share with you a lot of how she got there uh, to who she is today, RD, author, speaker, all of that stuff. So I'll leave her to introduce herself in a little bit, but a bit about the conversation you're about to hear. So first of all, I'm asking that you listen with an open mind and think about the complexities about what we talk about. Think about the nuance of what we talk about. And without jumping to conclusions about what we're saying, about without making tautological arguments or, or jumping from, from zero to 100, to stay in the gray with us, to really think curiously about why we say things and how we say things, how they impact people and how that impacts what we talk about and how we talk about it. So we definitely have a conversation about different scientific and nutritional research that's out there. What might be the limitations of the research and why? But then also, what do we do with the limitations in nutrition science? I think a lot of what nutrition scientists talk about outside of the eating disorder world is, you know, different fad diets or ways of eating ultra processed foods and intermittent fasting and keto and all this stuff that 
perhaps there's either a lot of science to indicate its truth or not a lot of science. And of course, unpacking what in the world science means, but also actually shedding light on on what we know and what we don't know. And we do a bit of an in-depth on intermittent fasting and some on ultra-processed foods. So definitely going into detail about that stuff with real honest conversation, not sort of glossing over it in the way that a lot of eating disorder clinicians do, but also making space for the reason why a lot of us don't engage in conversation about specific foods. And I think that just to reiterate, If you are a person that is engaging in severe restriction, whether it's anorexic restriction or orthorexic restriction or a binge restrict cycle, that none of the nuances in any of this nutrition science will be relevant because your mind will probably grab on to the idea of the restriction. And so, oh, I need to cut this out. Oh, I need to cut this out. And I think it'll be very clear that we are not ever endorsing any restriction But I want you to be honest with where you are at. And if you are somebody who is treating eating disorders or you're somebody who is a little bit further on your road in recovery and you are no longer restricting or you're no longer receiving messages to restrict from a lot of these food conversations, then proceed with caution. If you're somebody who's actively restricting, perhaps I'd say selfless because I don't want your brain to grab onto anything that might say restriction which of course is never something that we'd endorse. So here's the conversation. And as always, let me know what you think. Thank you so much for taking some time, Anna. I'm so excited to do this. I mean, as you know, I've been... Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been like, you know, dabbling in some of the conversations that I guess some other people aren't having. Um, And I'm so glad that we connected because... I think that a lot of the information that we've talked about is something that's so important for people who are learning more about the intuitive eating and eating disorder recovery space or or people that have been in it for decades and and just sort of seeing one-sided information. So I think what's really important and again, like I haven't seen is bringing so many different sides to the story, science, facts, and also understanding the eating disorder part and that nothing is mutually exclusive, nothing is in a vacuum. So really talking about this from a place of curiosity, openness, and like a thirst for the truth, I think is really, really important. So I think even just to give a little bit of context, can you share how did you get into this space? Like, what's your story? Yeah, so I definitely don't have kind of a traditional path or trajectory by any means. So I studied nutritional sciences in college. Um, I went to Cornell and they also have a combined PhD RD position. So that was like my pipe dream to get that position. So I so we can call you doctor. Exactly. I just wanted my junk mail to say doctor. So did you that, ever see um, that YouTube video? Like that was going around. I, I want to say like 15 years ago, it was like this YouTube thing. Like why you want to go get your doctorate? So my friends will call me doctor. Your friends will not call you doctor. My family will call you doctor. Your family's not going to tell you doctor. <laughs> no, no, they will absolutely will not. So like, I haven't seen that, but you should send it to me. I would get kicked out of that. If it still exists. So oh God, it was so old. <laughs> uh, but, um, 
I really was interested in nutrition because partly because I was so confused by it, you know, before I studied it formally, I was like everyone else where I was just so confused by what to believe. There were directly conflicting messages like low carb, high carb, low fat. And I just wanted to know what the truth was. It's like, I don't know who to believe. So I thought I'm Mm going to study the science of nutrition so that I can interpret the data for myself and make conclusions instead of just hope that whoever's telling me this knows what they're talking about. Yeah. So I um so I, I had kind of done research um leading up to my PhD. And so I really appreciated kind of the scientific process of things. I'm pretty type A, so it fit my personality well in terms of like here, let's control things except for one variable. And um, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it, it worked out well. So I did my dietetic internship uh, while I was doing my doctorate and enjoyed the clinical aspect of, of that, working with patients in the hospital setting, and then wrapped up my research at Cornell. I studied um, body weight regulation, and I was interested in kind of metabolism and how our body weights regulated, if at all, because that was pretty, and it still is pretty relevant. And so I was looking at kind of set point theory, settling point, dual intervention, different models that you might hear thrown around, especially in the intuitive eating space with like, oh, hashtag set point theory, eat whatever you want kind of a thing, your body takes (laughs) care of it. So after I finished up my research at Cornell, I went to National Institutes of Health and I was doing metabolic studies there in various settings before moving back to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis area, which is from originally, and started my private practice. So I originally started in sports nutrition. I had been a pretty active kid, kind of an athlete my whole life. And sports nutrition is pretty detail-oriented, so I appreciated that the details mattered. You know, for the general population, Mm -hmm. the difference between two and 2.2 grams of protein is not going to make any difference whatsoever. But when you're talking about Olympians and, you know, world champions and top end athletes, like that can be the difference between first and fifth place. So I appreciated really, yeah, it's really nuanced. And so I appreciated kind of that. I felt like my nerdy details mattered in that space. And so that's part of what drew me to that. And my husband is a former pro triathlete. So we really kind of swam in that athletic culture for a while. And so I enjoyed sports nutrition. I specialized in endurance athletes. And so I worked with a lot of uh, marathon, ultra marathon, triathlete, Ironman, which is a very long triathlon for listeners who aren't familiar with it. It's a 2.2 mile swim, like 112 mile bike ride, and then a marathon. So you've got to be absolutely bonkers to do that. Yeah, pretty much. And so (laughs) it was, you know, mind boggling because I personally have never done a marathon or Ironman or anything of that nature. So anyways, as much as I loved the detail and worked with some incredible people, I started to see a lot of eating disorders and at the very least disordered eating, if not like clinical eating disorders many of which which were undiagnosed. And Mm -hmm. so I felt kind of ill-equipped to help these people. And it wasn't even necessarily my position at the time because they weren't coming to me to improve their relationship to food or their bodies. They were coming to me because they're like, hey, I have a a hundred mile foot race. I need a race plan for this. And it was my job to help them do that. And so I started to feel a little morally conflicted because I thought, 
you know, this person really has pretty extreme (laughs) exercise habits here and it seemed to be hurting them physically and emotionally. And so I felt a little bit like I was enabling them and I guess I just kind of fell out of love with it um, in the sense that I felt like I wasn't helping these people to the best of my ability. And Mm -hmm. so I really was interested in helping people improve their relationship so that they didn't need such extreme maladaptive coping mechanisms. And so I uh, went out on maternity leave and it was kind of a nice hard stop with um, seeing clients. And then I used that time to kind of go back to school. I studied psychology more. I had minored in psychology, but took more psychology courses. And I did some additional trainings to specialize in working with eating disorders. So that's kind of my circuitous roundabout way to landing here. Yeah, which definitely gives you a different perspective. Like it's not just coming from a treatment center and then going into private practice, which gives you one perspective of eating disorders. You know, coming at this as a research scientist, I'm sure the way that you hear a lot of the information that's shared is a little cringy. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how nutrition science works and why the when people quote research? It's a little bit tricky. Yeah. So nutrition is incredibly difficult to study. Um, When you look at other kind of quote unquote hard sciences, it's a lot easier to get strong conclusions um, and conduct studies in ways that we can kind of move forward and progress more quickly. But nutrition is really difficult because it's incredibly hard to study what people eat. I know that sounds kind of dumb. Like, what do you mean it's hard? But if you think about it, we don't have a great way of knowing what someone eats without changing their behavior. So you can have strong, what's called internal validity, which means like, we're pretty confident about the conclusions within this study. So strong internal validity would be, I bring people into a lab and I control hundred percent of what they're eating right? They're like sleeping here. We know with hundred percent certainty what they're eating. Great. That's really strong internal validity, but that probably has very little to do with what they're eating on a day-to-day basis out in the real world. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to make extrapolations there. So on the other side of the coin, you say, okay, well, let's just study what people are doing out in the real world. We can ask them, what are you eating? We can have them do food journals, but those are inherently flawed. We have very little control and usually the accuracy of those are pretty poor. So, and even if you just ask someone, hey, you know, Raquel, what did you eat yesterday? You're probably going to forget some things or you're not going to be very accurate of like, oh, I guess that was half a cup. It wasn't a full cup or, you know, portion sizes, right? So it's really difficult to be super precise. There's one way that you can get someone's exact kind of total energy intake and expenditure. And that's with something called doubly labeled water. And it's a radioactive isotope that you drink. So it's like a shot basically that you would take. Oh my God, that's so creepy. It sounds scary. It's not, it's not harmful. You don't glow. It's, it's not as Do you have like 5G implanted in you and then the CIA (laughs) tracks you? (laughs) That would be fun. No, it's not as scary as it sounds, but then basically we can measure what someone is kind of measuring in terms of energy balance and take an expenditure. But the problem with that is it's about Wait, 10, how, how does that work? Is it so 
what happens is you have this isotope that you consume and because you can measure the rate of carbon dioxide production from cellular respiration and that's consistent, you can see like in the urine what someone is is expending. And so it gets Weird. expensive really quickly, right? So if it's $10,000 for you know one you have really small sample sizes and it becomes really limited right because funding is incredibly low i think all of nutritional sciences nih funding is like five percent it's like abysmal so we're trying to do studies on very limited resources and that's also what makes it hard to have really meaningful studies that would be incredibly expensive to do. Yeah. So I'm also thinking about long term. So people say, oh, this type of food causes that, or in the long term, it might be even correlated with something else. And we're talking about uh, across the span of a lifetime. Then you had better yeah. keep your eye on these subjects for their entire lifetime. Like that is a pretty long study, and lots of things can go wrong. Right. So you're referencing longitudinal studies, which is really common in nutrition too, is we'll take a group of people and then we'll look at them over a long period of time, which it's really hard to know what's causing what. So I'll give an example. For a while, they were saying, well, there's a really high correlation between coffee consumption and cardiovascular disease. Is coffee causing heart disease? And it turns out, no, it's actually, there's a really high prevalence of smoking in people with high coffee consumption. So it was actually the smoking, not the coffee. But you can see how there are a lot of other what are called confounding variables that can basically mess with a study to make it look like one thing when it really could be a multitude of other things. So it's really difficult to tease out and say like, it's this one thing that's causing this. Right. And then with food, you'd have to isolate one particular either type of food or exact food in every single person, control for every other way of eating, every other meal, every other snack, every other time. It almost seems impossible to keep track of every single moving piece in order to make any conclusions. Yes, it's very messy. It's very expensive. And so what we can do is usually tiny minuscule little bits of conclusions and together we put the pieces together instead of you don't have one sweeping study that says here look this proves xyz that you know usually doesn't happen in in nutrition Mm -hmm. and so you have to look at the body of evidence meaning multiple studies instead of just one paper and i see this a lot Mm -hmm. on the internet where people will kind of cite a paper and say see this proves blah 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 and I think that's a huge red flag. Uh, a true mm-hmm. scientist would never <laughs> have a paper and say, this proves that they're all hypotheses and they're pieces of evidence that support something or dispute it. But it's really difficult to say with one study, like, oh, there you go, done. It's yeah. usually a collection of studies that you want to look at. Well, if you took a, let's say, meta-analysis, would that be enough to prove something? So that's a great question. So yeah, a meta-analysis is when you basically summarize all of the studies on one specific topic or one question. And that can be helpful, but you have to be careful because what we say is garbage in, garbage out. So if you have a lot of... What does that mean? (laughs) So if you have really low quality studies and you summarize Uh a bunch of low quality studies, you're going to get a really low 
quality answer. So if these studies are inherently flawed, if they are poorly done, you know, maybe they did the wrong statistical analysis, whatever, or they're really different studies, right? You're trying to compare apples and oranges. It's difficult to to make a conclusion. So oftentimes you'll see in studies that a heterogeneous um, study population. So meaning they're just so different, it's really hard to compare them. So Mm -hmm. if you have pretty similar studies on a specific research question and they're well done, then yes, a meta-analysis can be really helpful. But otherwise it's difficult because usually the studies are so different and some of them Mm -hmm. could be poor quality that it's not going to give you a great answer. Yeah, one of my favorites is the statistically significant that Mm -hmm. it really could be clinically so insignificant. Can you talk to that for a second? Yeah, I think that's a great point because we see this a lot in research. It's all about getting published. So, you know, we say publish or perish. And so you really (laughs) want to have... (laughs) Academia has a dark side, let me tell you. You really want to have as many publications as you can. And so you're constantly looking for something that's what's called statistically significant. And that means that it's not due to chance. Like this finding isn't just a random chance that we found this. And so it can be a little tricky. Like it oftentimes depends on the analysis that you do. You can run a bunch of different analyses to kind of until you find something that's very frowned upon. But oftentimes they want something significant because the chances of that getting published is so much greater than showing a study like, hey, look, we didn't find anything. Like That doesn't get published very often. So they might find something like, let's say blood pressure, for example. Okay, eating broccoli reduces blood pressure by two milligrams of mercury. Okay, that is statistically significant. The broccoli group was, you know, different than the non-broccoli group. But you have to ask, what's the clinical significance of it? So just because the statistics say this is different, is it going to have a meaningful impact on the clinical setting? So is is this broccoli person going to live longer than the non-broccoli person? Are they going to have, you know, better um, health outcomes than, you know, the other group? So Oftentimes, or sometimes we see something that might be statistically significant that really isn't clinically significant. And so I think that's where having that bridge between like PhDs and MDs or RDs is really important because it's one thing to have the science, but then you have to look at Mm -hmm. like the real world application of it. Right. Like is the point to whatever it is actually going to make a difference, even if to a scientist, it is clearly a different number. Right. Right. Uh, so having said all this, you know, I think what's so easy to come to is to say, I have to be skeptical about every piece of science, every piece of research, or at least just, you know, keep my eyes wide open, which I think is is fair to be skeptical of research and to determine how they got to that place and all the potential places where it could have gone wrong and they just didn't really highlight that. But I think what could get really dangerous is to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, then none of this is accurate. Yeah, I agree. I think that oftentimes, especially if someone is struggling with an eating disorder, they have high anxiety, they're already, you know, very skeptical about things. This would be easy to say like, oh, it's all false. But it's not, you know, you have to say, I think the vast majority of of researchers, like 
they're doing their best and no science is perfect. And so what I tell people is we have to look at kind of the broad brush strokes and not the little hairs on the paintbrush. So if we are looking at consistency among different types of studies and over a long period of time and they're showing consistent things, that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, we're, we're onto something. And so I personally never make any recommendations based on a single study. That's not enough to, to really be compelling. But when you have several studies showing similar things, then, then that gives us a pretty good indicator. So I, I wouldn't be skeptical of everything and say like, oh, it's all, it's all bunk. But you can, I would say individual studies, yeah, they're all going to be, have their own imperfections, but together collectively, we're still moving forward in terms of nutrition science. And I think it also supports like, you have a certain degree of internal wisdom. And when you look at the data too, you know, no specific food is toxic. And we're looking at overall dietary patterns and not specific foods typically when it comes to kind of health and longevity. So Mm -hmm. I think if nothing else, it just shows you like, hey, you know, freaking out about the the nitty gritty details usually just gives you more anxiety. (laughs) And so kind of taking a step back and seeing more of the forest for the trees, I think is helpful. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that sort of brings us to this idea of why a lot of clinicians who specialize in eating disorders, even if they're well-versed in a lot of the research that has been proven over and over again, or at least indicates enough of you know something reflective of truth, that a lot of people don't often talk about different studies that have to do with either specific types of foods or groups of foods and what it does to the body because of how people hear that information. So we'll talk about some of that in specific, but maybe to preface that, we can talk about why we would be a little hesitant to and what's important for people to keep in mind when they listen to anything related to specifics about food. Yeah. So, you know, I think context is everything um, that really makes or breaks a piece of information. And I think, you know, as a clinician, as a practitioner, you have to know when to say things and when not to say things. And so I say a good clinician knows when to say something. A great clinician knows when not to say something. No, and I love so, that. you know, and I think too, like we're eager to share things that we just recently learned or find interesting, but you have to think like, is this going to help this person? Maybe it's even like your brother or something, you know, is this, is it going to help this person, especially like in an eating disorder context, if someone is, trying to, you know, restore weight and become more medically stable, like sharing that, you know, hey, this food is shown to cause XYZ or it's associated with this, probably not helpful. But I think in certain contexts that it could be could be more relevant to share. And I also think you have to understand like what's your understanding of it. If you're a researcher and this is your study and you're sharing something like great, but if this is something you heard from someone on Instagram talking about a study, you know, and they're in the food aisle at Target, like probably not the best, best resource. Yeah. So yeah, I I think it's really important that you take a look at the context in which you're number one, getting the information and number two, who you're sharing it with and how do you think it's going to land with them? You never know for sure, right? Like we can't control Mm -hmm. how other people perceive things, but you probably have a pretty good idea of like, 
this might give this person a lot of relief if I let them know like, hey, we really don't have evidence showing that, you know, a small amount of Oreos every day causes any harm. That could be really comforting to to someone yeah. in a certain context. So I think it just depends. I, I have clients who have found a lot of relief in sharing, you know, and I say, you know what, your brain needs at least 130 grams of carbohydrates just to function like at baseline at rest. And they're like, really? Like, oh, so I could have at least that much. And I'm like, well, that's just for your brain. Your other body needs <laughs> energy too. But you kind of see the point where it almost gives them kind of like a pass or a green light to like, oh, okay, well, mm-hmm. I can have at least this much. And so depending on the person that can kind of help step them towards, I think, more balance. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And also being mindful that whoever's hanging out with us today, listening, they're all going to have their own stories and they're all going to be at their own point, whether it's in recovery or treating people who are working toward recovery and their own personal backgrounds. And so everybody is coming at this from a completely different angle. Um, You know, that elephant metaphor, like looking at the elephant and one person describes it as this way, but they're really looking at the ear or the leg. And so I don't think that anybody is, is right or wrong. I guess what I'm hoping for in this part of the conversation is to provide a little bit more for people who feel shut down in asking some questions about specific nutrition. And, you know, they might be a lot further in on their recovery journey. And so they're maybe not restricting anymore. But the answer of all foods fit, and that is true, but that's the end of the conversation might be really invalidating because they know that there's so much more out there. It's only being talked about by much more weight loss oriented, either scientists or nutritionists. And part of what's not happening is coming together and somebody with perhaps an eating disorder background to talk about, hey, this might be true, this might not be true. But we also can't ignore you know, say, for example, there's like all the hype about, let's say, intermittent fasting or a couple of years ago was keto and all this stuff. And what's so many people were so quick to jump on. So many eating disorder people were quick to jump on is that's terribly restrictive. It's it's horrible for you. There's no evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And I think I think that we perhaps can talk about some of it, how it's not that there's zero evidence. It's that when we think about this in the context of severe restriction, Yes, it is incredibly hard, uh, damaging to think about engaging in any sort of serious restriction like keto or intermittent fasting. That is incredibly unhealthy with somebody who has disordered eating or an eating disorder and a non-conversation. But when somebody is coming at it from, I'm not restricting anymore, but please, like, can you tell me some truths? I think that we, we sort of owe it to them to at least have the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I mean, I personally see that and and struggle with it sometimes in the sense that it seems very much like you have the diet camp and you have the kind of anti-diet intuitive eating camp. And that's it. Like pick your side. It's Mm -hmm. black and white. Yes, pick your side. Yeah. And, and, you know, I feel like I get caught in the crossfires frequently because I have, you know, certain, you have eating disorder clinician colleagues who are like, any diet's horrible and you know, we should all be intuitive eating. And then you have some researchers who are like, Hey, we just found this really cool, uh, you know, outcome from this dietary pattern. And so it, it can feel very like tug of war ish. And so mm-hmm. it is nuanced and it's hard because there's so many things that go into someone's 
food choice. And I would say to someone who's kind of, I would say farther along in their recovery journey, they feel like they're recovered, they're stable. And they're like, I want to do more than just hear about all foods fit. I would say just always be honest with yourself. I think if you can, why do you want to know Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's like a classic, like therapist line is, Oh, I wonder why you want to (laughs) know. You mean I'm a classic therapist? Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, asking yourself and being honest, like, do you, you know, is, is this kind of a gateway into finding a reason to, we'll see this intermittent fasting study did show better blood sugar outcomes or whatever. I just made that up, but so I should try it. Like, are you really concerned with your blood glucose or is this like mm-hmm. kind of a, an excuse to, to restrict again? But there are people who genuinely just are interested in, in nutrition. So when you look at kind of overall dietary patterns, yeah, you can see that a diet consisting of predominantly heavily processed foods doesn't yield great health outcomes. There's a, a wonderful study by Kevin Hall, one of my colleagues at the NIH, and he did a, an ultra-processed food study where one group had 20% of their calories from processed foods and the other had 20% of their calories from um, like real food. So it was like an 80-20 and they were flip-flopped, right? So either 80% was ultra-processed or 20% was ultra-processed. And they had different outcomes. And what was interesting is people rated the diet as... I mean, it wasn't like a weight loss diet, but like they rated their foods as equally enjoyable and equally like familiar, but the ultra processed food, they did have different outcomes in terms of total energy intake. And I think some of their other biomarkers were different as well. So, you know, with someone who's, I would say in their stable in their recovery process is eat in a way that, you know, makes you feel well. And that's usually going to include kind of more real foods based on what you have available. You know, it's somewhat of a privileged problem. Some people don't have access to it. Someone doesn't have access to it. Yeah. Yeah, Some people don't have access to it or the resources to prepare real food, right? Like you have to be able to do something with like vegetables and, and whole foods. Like they need to be prepared so they're palatable and edible. But I also, you know, even in the, the study that had 20% 20% of their foods coming from processed foods, they still they still had favorable outcomes. So I haven't seen evidence that including any processed foods is detrimental. You know, I don't think sugar is toxic, but I also don't think living off of just sugar is going to be helpful either. So mm-hmm. I think that it's not exciting or sexy, but like really like having more processed foods in moderation, you're probably going to be just fine. But yeah, obviously, if they're starting to crowd out more nutrients, then that's when it can become problematic. So I think it's helpful to, from an eating disorder lens, because it kind of helps keep the food police at bay or the orthorexia. Because I think if you're like, oh, just whole foods, like that can be socially very limiting. Yeah. And so having some, so like, okay, let's say we're going to have, you know, a, a Buddha bowl, like grain bowl, whatever for lunch. And then, you know, you can have Kit Kat bar for dessert, kind of like at the end, if you want, like something like that, where, yeah, you're eating mostly real food, but you're also having kind of more quote unquote fun foods or something that's more processed that, that you enjoy, I think helps maintain 
that balance mm-hmm. so you don't get quite so skewed on you know only real food and then you're starting to feel some sense of deprivation yeah and i think what a lot of people who are preaching intuitive eating say that ultimately if you decide to have a lot of, let's say, fast food or something as your meals, then you will feel different and you will want to make different choices, which I find happens very often. And so it's not saying like you can't have this. It's sure, have it. And tell me how you feel after a couple of weeks. And chances are we'd want to tweak something just because you don't feel so good. Um, and that mm-hmm. has happened time and time again. But I think what that neglects is some people are really not in touch with how they feel. They don't have access to that. Their intuition is far too removed from their awareness. Or some people that, and this is something that David Wiss was talking about, have maybe a different response to some of the foods. And I think that it it doesn't leave room for, perhaps this is a small minority, but it doesn't leave room for a small minority of people who do respond to food differently who do have different experiences with food and satiety and cravings that perhaps the majority of people, the intuitive eating way or listen to your body and and see how you feel is sufficient. And for them, it perhaps it isn't. So, you know, that's good. Yeah, no, you're, you're completely right. And you see this in, in MRI studies. So people who, you know, in the research are labeled as obese, which I know it's a very stigmatizing term, but that is the truth they've using in research. So they look at people who, you know, have a high BMI and, and we look and some of them have a greater neurological response to food. Like their brain lights up more than a control person. And we actually see this the opposite end of the spectrum. So in some of the MRI studies with anorexia patients, they don't have a, as strong a response to mm-hmm. food. Like their brain just doesn't light up as much. It's kind of muted. They're they're not drawn to the food as much as a control person. And then you we have these people who have you know a hyper response to it. So it really does, I think, depend on the person. And yes, there are contexts in which some people have a greater propensity towards some of the hyperpalatable food. And, you know, we really don't have as much control, I think, over our choices or our weight as we're led to believe that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that can be a really damaging message that we're getting from society. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's just say I'm a person who my brain lights up a lot more by these highly palatable foods. And say, for example, I actually know that for some reason I went for an MRI. I was part of the study. I don't know. And they told me the results. I didn't just say that this is me because I think that it's very easy to be like, oh, yeah, that's totally me. And and I think that we obviously have to give a lot of significance to somebody's report and their lived experience. But we can't necessarily know for sure. Let's just say I know for sure. What then? Because and just sort of like the addendum to that question is whether or not that I have a history of disordered eating engaging with foods in a way that is restrictive will probably push someone toward disordered eating. I mean, nine and a half or almost 10 times out of 10. And so what do you suggest I even like try to do if that's me? Yeah, that's a good question. So my if philosophy there's an answer, is, I don't know. Yeah. My philosophy is always through a lens of self-care. So with the information that we have about you, 
how can we best take care of you given what we know? What does that look like? And so for someone, let's say maybe their thing is, I don't know, potato chips. Great. Like I think we should still include potato chips because we know that restriction only leads to more issues and, you know, stronger desire. So I don't think cutting them out is the answer. So how can we include potato chips, but also include foods that are going to help you feel well, right? Because no one feels well off of purely processed foods. Mm -hmm. And so what can we add? That's usually something that I have with clients is like, you know, okay, Oreos, what can we add? Can we crush those up and put them over like some yogurt or can we have them with like some peanut butter for some more protein mm-hmm. or, you know, like what can we like pair with this? Yes. <laughs> Long live the nineties, right? <laughs> so what can we add to that in order to still kind of honor that craving or give you that food that you highly desire, but that also mm-hmm. is going to help you feel better. So you don't get on this, you know, blood sugar roller coaster, or yeah. you don't, you know, feel like crawling under your desk after you eat that, or you're, you know, mm-hmm. still full because you ate the whole thing. What can we do to help take care of yourself, right? Foster mm-hmm. self-care, including this food. Yeah. And I like the way to see this. And this is something that I love about the intuitive eating, eating disorder recovery community. It's about what can we add? How can we do this in a way that's self-care? How can we incorporate all of these foods, the chips, the chocolate, whatever is fun for you? And and how can we go from that angle? Because that's much more inclusive and that's much more open and so much easier to do. Yeah. I just think that when you look at the approach of just cutting things out, it leads to more problems than it solves. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I'm curious about a couple more things, just because I know that we've talked about this in the past, some research, whether whichever way on one of the things that people talk about all the time is intermittent fasting. And they've, you know, come out with different updated info about that. And I think that, you know, some people's version of an intermittent fasting. It's like, oh, I just won't eat after seven or... And then there are some people who do it a lot more extreme where they have these like full day fasts or two day fasts or, you know, whatever it is in my mind seems like just as crazy as this uh, Iron Man situation. But what is out there on intermittent fasting? What is it? Like, what's true? What's not? Yeah. So intermittent fasting was just starting to kind of catch on as I was doing my research uh, for my doctorate. So I convinced my advisor to let me do some intermittent fasting studies because <laughs> I was personally really interested in it. And it turns out that a lot of the studies, first of all, are animal models. So that in and really? of is very limiting. Yeah. We don't have a lot of solid evidence in humans long-term. There mm-hmm. are several shorter-term studies, but it's really hard to look at something short-term and apply it and make sweeping conclusions. So with the animal models, you know, people say like, oh, well, when they restrict their eating to eight hours a day, we saw an improvement of, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, you can't apply that to humans because for a mouse or for a rat, that's a really big proportion of their of their life, right? Like if your lifespan is mm. two years and you go, you know, 12 hours without eating, proportionally, that's a decent chunk that would be probably like two or three days 
of us not eating. So mm-hmm. right there, you kind of have that extrapolation issue. Initially, they thought that it had a big impact on longevity. And now they're starting to kind of backpedal and say like, oh, we might not be so sure about that. So mm-hmm. one of the things was like in monkeys, some of the intermittent fasting monkeys technically did live longer. But if you look at it, their health was pretty poor. Like their hair started falling out. They were they became very violent. They were essentially, really? they were hangry monkeys. I mean, <laughs> right? Like the the quality of life was undeniably very poor. So you kind of ran into issues of like, well, quality over quantity perhaps. And in humans, you know, we don't know because we don't have uh, a longitudinal study and people practicing that is going to be conclusive of anything. So one thing that we do know pretty well is you don't want to be eating tons of food during your biological night. So we have something called circadian rhythm, which is just your body's kind of natural ebb and flow of of things. And, you know, certain hormones are peaking at certain times and your body kind of has a, a natural rhythm to things. And so when we eat during our biological night, that can cause some disruption of our circadian rhythm. And you see this with shift workers. So people who like work night shift, particularly people like nurses, doctors, um, right? And those that have night shift tend to have kind of more erratic blood glucose. We see kind of worse um, insulin sensitivity, sometimes blood pressure or cortisol, those types of biomarkers can be off. And so when people want to do intermittent fasting, usually it's for weight loss. And so for that, we have shown that Intermittent fasting is no better than a traditional diet in terms of weight loss. There's nothing magical about it from a weight loss perspective. So if that's the case, then why else would they want to do it? If they think it's for longevity, I see you just don't have data to support that in humans at this point. So I feel like Peter think, Atia would be like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> not true. <laughs> yes, yes. So I think that when you are looking at intermittent fasting, usually people see it as an easier way to restrict than trying to restrict certain foods or just eat less Mm -hmm. overall. Yeah. And so what's interesting is when you see some of the studies, it can affect people's hunger. So individuals who did intermittent fasting, even if they were eating the same number of calories as like, you know, the control group, their hunger was much higher. And so their ghrelin levels, which is like duct the hunger hormone, ghrelin increases. So they tend not to feel as full or satisfied from the same amount of food as someone who's eating kind of more spread throughout the day. So I just don't think that the research is there to support intermittent fasting in humans quite yet. Not to say that it won't, but I think one thing that we do know is, you know, eating at night usually is not incredibly helpful from a a metabolic perspective. So metabolically, I'm assuming that this is adjacent to the circadian rhythm that you're talking about, but metabolically in terms of perhaps insulin resistance, et cetera, what happens when somebody eats late at night? So when you eat late at night, your body isn't quite as insulin sensitive. So meaning it's not quite as good at gauging how much insulin it needs to produce to cover the amount of carbohydrates consumed. Mm-hmm. And it's not just carbohydrates. We see dyslipidemia as well. So again, your body's not quite as good at 
metabolizing the foods that we're giving it late at night. So we tend to see higher levels of, of lipids, so higher fat in your blood, um, as well as higher blood glucose. Um, so your body's not quite as good as like shuttling that energy into cells. So it's kind of floating in your blood. It's a little bit slower to kind of process it. So, you know, if it happens occasionally, that's, I could say normal, right? Like you're it's late at night and you're hungry, or maybe you wake up and you're hungry or something. Then I tell people like, great, you have a snack and, you know, go to bed one time, you know, or occasionally it's not going to make a big difference. But if it's a pattern, then you want to address what you're eating earlier in the day because you're probably not eating enough during the day and that's causing you to feel hungry at night. So instead of looking at this from the perspective of you shouldn't eat past seven or eight o'clock as a rule, if you're hungry, say whatever time at night you're ready to go to bed and you're like, oh man, I'm hungry. Absolutely have the snack, but then let's look at it. Like what's happening that this is happening almost every single day? Are you having enough during the day? Probably not. Because if you're hungry at night, it means you didn't eat enough during the day, which means we have to add more food during the day. So that doesn't happen, which means that the answer here is not cut out the evening snack. The answer is, can we reshuffle where your food is coming from? Because clearly there is something insufficient during the day. Yeah, hundred percent. And what's really interesting is there's a circadian rhythm to your satiety as well. So having more earlier in the day leads to better satiety and kind of appetite control throughout the day. So the old adage of breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper holds some truth to it. And so when people are skipping breakfast, they think, oh, well, I'm you know, either saving calories or oh, I'm just going to move until later. But really, you're kind of setting yourself up for just feeling incredibly hungry later on mm-hmm. in the day. So yeah. I always try to encourage clients to have breakfast um, and potentially a morning snack, depending on their situation. Yeah. And then also adding in that, especially if you live in the city or you go out with friends or you need to go out after, go out for dinner after the kids are sleeping, that's a social thing. And you should probably not cut out your 8 p.m. reservation just because we said this. Like that, right. that is highly limiting and not at all what we're suggesting. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's one where I think people, you know, kind of misinterpret the details and they take it a little too far. And so, like you said, they'll skip social events because like, oh, well, I don't eat past, you know, 8 p.m. or whatever. And one of the intermittent fasting studies I did, I did a qualitative follow-up study and I asked participants what their experience was like. And it was incredibly limiting to their social life. And they found it really hard to socialize, engage with friends and family because they couldn't eat past, I think it was 8 p.m. So you know, I, I think had an overall negative impact on their health from a social perspective, right? Because health is multifaceted. It's not just your physical health. You have to include your social health, your emotional health and all of that as well. Yeah. I think you had mentioned something about uh, men versus women with intermittent fasting. Am I misremembering? Yeah, no. So there's a different response with men and women. So women, we tend to see activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight, flight, or freeze. So we see an increase in cortisol. And so women tend to feel much more kind of anxious, potentially jittery, stressed, and it can affect our hormones. So we have something called gonadotropin releasing hormone or GNRH. And this is a hormone that's released in a pulsatile fashion in our brain. And this affects kind of downstream 
sex hormone. So FSH, LH, and as well as then eventually estrogen and progesterone. And so when we restrict our intake, um, that affects GnRH pulsatility. And so basically that can cause a you know irregular um, menstrual cycle, or it can also cause it to go away totally. So when you change the pulsatility, it's kind of like changing the beat of a song, right? If you change the beat, it sounds completely different. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing here. So when that stress affects the pulsatility, then our menstrual cycle can just go kind of haywire. So you're saying that men and women respond to intermittent fasting in a very different way. So that even if there was evidence that intermittent fasting was the quote healthy thing for longevity, et cetera, for men, it most definitely isn't indicated for women that we know for sure. Yes, I you summarize that very well. It's contraindicated for women. I don't recommend women intermittent fast. And there's evidence showing that even as little as five hours without eating can cause some uh, hormone disturbance in women. So, yeah, so I recommend that women, you know, eat roughly, I mean, really, I think everyone should eat roughly every three to four hours. I think it's pretty normal, but really trying to avoid going more than five hours without eating. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who are eating breakfast at seven and lunch at one, we're talking to you. (laughs) Have a snack, have a snack. And it doesn't have to be a huge meal, right? Like snacks are a great option, especially if you're busy, if you're at work or school, like, you know, can you have a bar or some trail mix or, you know, just a few handfuls or a few bites of something is going to be better than nothing. Mm -hmm. Just because it will help send that signal to your brain that like, Hey, we have some fuel coming in and you're not in this famine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pause us there just because for the sake of time, we can obviously do a follow-up because there's so many more that we talked about and we could talk about. Um, I think it's important to go through each of them like this, as opposed to what I've heard in the past is just sort of like making fun of certain diets. And while that's entertaining and really wildly entertaining on TikTok and Instagram, it doesn't actually provide information that helps us really understand the why of some of this. So I think this is really, really helpful. And just to reiterate for the millionth time that if you are engaged in restriction and a lot of this information or even one part of this is making you think, oh, I shouldn't have this, then you miss the point. That is not what we're saying. We are not at all saying to cut anything out or to engage in restriction. So just sort of either re-listen and, and get the point or just shut it off and turn it off and Listen to one of the other episodes that uh, let you know, do not restrict. It is not what we're saying whatsoever. No, no. Restriction is not a form of self-care. So, yeah. Um, Okay. So before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yeah. So um, I have a website. You can just go to dranarobi.com. I do technically have an Instagram. I'm pretty inactive on it. <laughs> so the website, um, there's a way you can reach me, you can email me and I'd love to, to chat with people so they can find me there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter you'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. 
Can't wait to see you in your inbox.